Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 101st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Alex Iskold, managing partner at 2048 Ventures. Alex is a serial entrepreneur with a proven track record of success. Recently, he was the managing director for Techstars New York, where he ran the program for five years. Alex is now on to the next chapter in his career. He has launched an early-stage venture capital firm called 2048 Ventures with his partner, Paul Sethi. The firm recently announced a $27 million fund, which will be used to invest in exceptional first-time entrepreneurs or repeat founders with a first-time founder mindset, which is a term that he explains during our interview. Another important strategy for this firm is the fact that they will be taking a location-agnostic approach. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Alex's background story, going back to when he immigrated to the U.S. when he was 19 and his early positions on Wall Street, his experience as a serial entrepreneur and the companies he founded, how he got involved in Techstars, and what that experience taught him after running the program, plus some practical advice for getting into this top accelerator, all the details on 2048 Ventures and what they are targeting for investments, the question that entrepreneurs should be asking investors, what is the magic moment that a company should be looking for, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Brex, the corporate credit card for startups, is the sponsor for this week's podcast. Brex founders Henrique and Pedro built a payments business in Brazil, but kept getting rejected for a corporate credit card when they were in Y Combinator. So they decided to build Brex with instant online signup, no founder liability required, and limits 10 to 20 times higher than standard cards. It is a must-have for entrepreneurs. Sign up for Brex at brex.com, that's B-R-E-X.com, and get card fees waived by entering the code FIZ, F-I- during sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Excited to be here. Uh, so I was excited to talk to you for many reasons, but um, you know, to, to kick things off, um, you know, I was going through your own personal website. So alexiscold.net. And there is a wealth of information there. I mean, if 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 our audience hasn't discovered your website yet, they need to, because I was immersed into all these amazing advice uh, blog posts. So I was curious, just like, when did you start writing? And, um, you know, how, how do you keep up with it? Because I've seen lots of people that start blogging, and then they just kind of fall off the train. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually started twice in my career. First time when I started was back in 2007, when I was running my second startup, I contributed a whole bunch of articles to a website called Read Write Web. And uh, I used to write more of like um, analysis pieces on industry trends um, and things like that. And then when I took over Techstars in New York uh, in 2013, basically what happened was I've noticed that founders keep coming back to me and asking me the same questions. And Sure. You know, I realized pretty quickly that it might make sense for me to just start writing it down so that I can share it, not just with these founders, but, you know, future founders. And so that's kind of how I started writing Startup Cats. Well, there's a whole library of resources. So again, and we're going to tackle some of these topics that you wrote about in this podcast, but um, let's, let's rewind the clock. Let's go way back. So, um, you know, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I, I grew up uh, in a small town uh, in Western Ukraine. And so my family and I immigrated to the United States in 91. I was 19 at the time. So I've actually started uh, going to the university back in Ukraine. And then uh, the family and I moved here and I've completed my, my education here. And, you know, as a child, 
I used to have completely photographic impeccable memory and I could just like remember absolutely everything. For real? I, uh, for real. Basically wow. I would memorize like, I would just like memorize pages and pages of prose or poetry. And like, so it was pretty easy. I would say that I never really like got into things deep that happened later in my life. And I, I was very lucky to sort of really get immersed in science and computer science and engineering, but that happened later in life. So early on, I kind of had like a pretty free pass because I, I was able to just memorize everything. I am really, really jealous. <laughs> I so wish I had that, that uh, capability, but I didn't. <laughs> I don't have it anymore though. So now I have to do the real work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you graduated from Lehigh with a mathematics degree? Yes, and I was a computer science minor. Got it. Okay. And what, what were some of your first jobs out of undergrad? So straight out of undergrad, I joined Goldman Sachs as a back office engineer and spent a bunch of time there. And after that, I got a job at a place called D.E. Shaw, which, which, is, uh, which was and still is a high-tech hedge fund that many people know, not only because it's one of the top hedge funds in New York, but also because Jeff Bezos and the entire Amazon mafia, regional mafia came out of it. Um, so was really fun place, um, learned a lot, but then I realized that I didn't really love being on wall street. And so I decided to leave and go join local, uh, startup. And so that's kind of how I started, uh, in startups. No, but how do you think that experience translated to, you know, your foundation level of success, you know, working at Goldman and, and, and a hedge fund? Well, you know, I mean, I think, the, the the biggest thing for me was access to incredibly bright people, like specifically D.E. Shaw was incredibly selective and it was just this razor sharp people. Like, I mean, the head of strategy was like putting a medal winner and it's just this concentration of brain power. And in retrospect, you know, everything in life that you sort of touch and if you're doing it right, turns into a network. And when you kind of analyze your journey, you realize that you are effectively building a network. And so I think that that was, it was, it was also like validation in a lot of ways for me, but also like networking that sort of then translated into, uh, into my future career. And you mentioned you then, you know, started working in the startup world. Uh, and shortly thereafter you, you started your own company. So were you always entrepreneurial and what kind of led you down that path of, of being an entrepreneur? I mean, it was, it was a complete accident. I was 24 at the time and I, at the time got really obsessed with complexity science. So I've discovered that, um, complexity science can synthesize different branches of human understanding, like from biology to economics and that there's these patterns and effectively the most things in life are networks. And so I became network and graph theory, not, and, I realized that no one really had been applying these ideas to software. And I said, wait a second, software can be thought of as a network. And so basically on the whim, as you do when you're 24, I started, <laughs> started a company and it was actually a really cool company that was ultimately in the uh, space of static analysis, but high level, we built software that helped people find bugs in their software and primarily architectural flaws and then help them fix the software by moving it around and like improving it. Now you built this company to the point where it was acquired by IBM. Um, so, so what was that experience like? I mean, your first company kind of built this on a whim yet you get acquired by big blue. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people that you meet. And that was one of the lucky moments in my life. You know, I, I think we did get pretty lucky. It was, it was a very meaningful exit for us at the time. And the experience was completely surreal. I was what, like 27 at the time. And, you know, I, you know, we've gone through the acquisition process, which is never easy. And ours hasn't been easy either, but it completed. And then after that, I stayed at IBM for a couple more years to commercialize sort of the next gen of the tech that we developed. And that was also an amazing learning experience looking back, kind of understanding how do you take a product that you develop as a tiny startup? And then what's the viewpoint of the larger enterprise like IBM? How do you take that to market? I mean, it's just really lucky and mind-blowing, mind-expanding experience. And then what'd you do after that? So after that, I was a chief architect of a distributed computing company called Data Synapse. And Data Synapse was effectively a precursor of Amazon Web Services. So we've done um, basically Hadoop, like grid computing, it was called at the time. And uh, we also did uh, web server virtualization, which was incredibly technically challenging um, because there was just not enough compute literally back then. And so we were, we were selling this to uh, banks, et cetera. So that company ultimately got acquired by uh, Tipco. And that was already after I left to start my second company, which was called Get Blue, and which was more in like social networking and uh, social TV space. So well, let's take a deeper dive into Get Glue. So what was kind of the aha moment that led you down the path of starting that company? And again, there was another company that had an exit. Yeah, well, that was a mess. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so um, this is I started, stuff that the entrepreneurs need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so I started the company actually not in the social TV space, but I was focused on the idea of building more intelligence into the browser. And so I kind of started by saying, like, what if the browser could understand the content that you're looking at, and what if it can be contextually helpful to you? So when you think about this problem, it's still sort of like, we're still trying to solve it. Like if you look at assistants like Google Assistant, that's trying to understand your context, um, that was in that zip code. And so we started the company, we got investment amazingly from Union Square Ventures. They led my series A and the company really wasn't doing well uh, in the semantic web space, but we through odds and, you know, like ebbs and flows uh, pivoted into social TV where we uh, figured out that People uh, are interested in sharing and talking about the TV shows. It was a pretty wild sort of pivot. Um, and the company just took off. We became effectively the number one uh, social network for TV, um, only, only like probably second to Twitter, which wasn't really super focused on TV, but it was a, it was a big pillar of what they were doing. So it was, uh, it was a wild, really amazing ride. So it was a separate social network, right? So it just, like you said, a uh, comparison would be a version of Twitter, but just focused on, uh, you know, people that are immersed in different TV programs. Correct. It was actually, it was similar to Foursquare where you could check in and share what you're watching. So like if you're watching Game of Thrones, you can check in and then say, you know, I'm watching Game of Thrones. And there were like a bunch of really cool things that we built. So the best thing that we've ever built was real-time personalized guide that was effectively the first guide of it, like of its kind that sort of dispatched with a notion of linear television. And it was smart about, you know, integrating Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, 
as well as on-demand stuff and the television because it was focused on the question, not what's on now, but what to watch. What should I watch? So we kind of recognized that transition from linear television to asynchronous watching. Um, and so the second cool thing that we've built is we've created this. I mean, it's going to sound ridiculous, but it was incredibly cool. We created this badging system of physical stickers, and we got literally every single major studio and TV network, except for CBS, on board to work with us and to reward their fans with these physical stickers. And we had, we had the whole sticker factory uh, up in upstate New York where you as a fan could unlock 20 stickers and then they would be physically mailed to you. Oh, wow. And so they're physically mailed. People went completely crazy for these things because they were unlike regular badges, which are digital objects with sort of iconography that you don't care about. They were imagined like you can collect all the stickers with different Game of Thrones actors and characters and then different stickers per episode. And um, if you actually go uh, to eBay and search for get blue stickers, people are still selling them to this age, to this day, the company has been defunct for six years. So (laughs) (laughs) we created a big, a bit of a sticker cult. Well, it's interesting how you take a, you know, you know, like you said, most, you know, people are used to the four square badges, right. Um, but to take a physical object, it was kind of like a different mindset and it just, you know, you never know what's going to catch with your audience. Exactly. And I got this idea, you know, like ironically, I got this idea from my kid. She she came back from school and, uh, you know, she said like, dad, look, I got this physical sticker. I got a star because I did well. And I was like, wait a second. People don't really care much about the badges, but what if we send them physical stickers? And I, to this day, can't understand how we convinced every major Hollywood entity to, to get in on this. <laughs> well, it's that creative thinking and obviously persistence with the, um, you know, the networks that I'm sure it was uh, a lot of work to break down the doors and figure out who would own the authority to give the rights to those stickers. <laughs> All right. So from there, you know, the company did um, sell and then you kind of went on to this next chapter of your career, which was, uh, you know, running the Techstars program in New York. And, uh, you know, VentureFizz has had a long standing relationship with Techstars. Um, you know, we, we were, Geez, I think we, uh, so, you know, the first class, the, uh, when Sean Broderick was running it up in Boston, um, you know, we, we were, you know, helping promote it and, you know, the demo day type of stuff was a lot of fun. And that program has done amazing things uh, for so many different regions, Boston, New York, and so many different places across the country. Um, so, so what led you down the path of, of taking on that role? Yeah, so Brad Feld, who is one of the founders of Techstars, um, was an angel investor in my second company. He was an angel investor in Get Blue. And so when the journey ended, he called me and he said, listen, we, we need to hire somebody to run Techstars in New York. And um, I really didn't know what to expect. And, you know, I sort of on the whim decided to take the job. Like I wasn't looking to become an investor and it wasn't my goal, but um, it just seemed like a fascinating opportunity. And so I said, yes. And, you know, hands down, this has been, um, the most mind bending and heartwarming experience of my life. Like the last five years were just absolutely incredible. And what do you think those five years taught you? Well, not only they taught me things, but they've reshaped me as a human, because what I've ultimately understood is that 
the fastest way to change yourself and to learn is to experience many human beings at a very rapid sequence. And that's what happens when you invest in 100 companies and see so many entrepreneurial journeys over 200 founders in such a rapid succession. So when you think about like how you learn, you learn from books, from people and from travel, but you travel because you meet people and you see places. So I've effectively completely reshaped my thinking of the world, who I am as a human through these experiences with founders. And so the biggest things that I've learned is that my strength as an investor squarely is empathy, meaning I can understand the founder's journey and this sort of empathy and authenticity are absolutely key to how I connect with founders. Because if you can have that, you can then build trust. And once you build trust, you can start having small impact. And so everything else sort of stems from that foundation. You know, obviously I'm super nerdy when it comes to product engineering, science, uh, you know, vastly expanded my thinking about business models, what works, what doesn't work, what kind of companies make sense to invest in. But really sort of the foundation is about this human connection between investor and the founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a thousand percent true. One of the things that I learned uh, just by keeping tabs on uh, Techstars up in Boston was the, um, you know, the managing directors, that, that job is really hard, um, not only for mentoring and guiding uh, the current cohort, but also the recruiting of companies. So it wasn't like you just said, hey, applications are open and you just kicked back and waited for them to flood in. Um, I remember having a conversation with Katie Ray and th- they were hustling to get the best companies into that Boston program. And they were going everywhere. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize how intense it was. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the job is the coolest and the craziest job. Um, you know, it, it, it is, it is so multifaceted. And like you said, you know, we actually run two programs a year in New York back to back, which was, you know, we ran five programs back to back and I run total of eight programs. Like you said, uh, recruiting is incredibly challenging because you're effectively competing with everybody in the world to get the best companies. And so, you know, the way that I've approached it and the way that I approach things in general, I was thinking about it as a network. How can I build a network to help me recruit? Where are the nodes? Uh, and the hubs that I should be thinking about and how do you build, um, a, you know, a, re- a really strong network-based recruiting process. And then, you know, to be fair, New York uh, program quickly beca- became sought-after program in Techstars. And so we did enjoy a lot of referrals from the community, from other investors. And then a lot of founders just wanted to apply and, like, work with us. So, we, you know, we've put a lot of time initially to build reputation and then that reputation started to pay off and like people started to come to us. What are some of the companies that have scaled or exited? We've got an amazing portfolio of companies. Like obviously a lot of them are still very early. Um, but you know, there's what I, I, I would mention, like just like the sheer range of companies. So, you know, companies that are you know, completely out there in a way, like we've actually funded a company out of Boston called DeIce, which invented a new way of de-icing airplanes. And it's a spin out from MIT and it's absolutely incredible company. Um, another company from Boston that is doing incredibly well, it's called Breakhorn and it's in cybersecurity space. Um, you know, they effectively help prevent spear phishing that causes so many security breaches. 
Um, we've invested in a um, super cool company that was in Detroit and now moved to New York. It's called PathSpot. And they've built a device that helped uh, restaurants uh, deal with foodborne illnesses. Uh, we invested in a whole bunch of companies in Canada that are absolutely incredible. We invested in a company called Skywatch, which is effectively um, building infrastructure for uh, capturing satellite images so that they become more accessible to people uh, around the world. We invested in ultra-fast fiber optic internet, um, you know, online, online schools for data science. Uh, the list goes on and on. Like we have over 100 companies in the portfolio. And like I said, a lot of them are still uh, pretty early. One of our companies in our first program called Tutum uh, got acquired by Docker uh, a year after they launched. And it's now the Docker cloud is actually the software that that company built. So a lot of really good and interesting things have been happening and just the sheer diversity of the types of founders and the types of industries uh, has been pretty incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. It's not like you were just investing in one category or SaaS, right? It's like, I mean, the diversity of technology challenges that founders were solving that you invested in is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And like, I think that's what also helps, obviously it creates stronger portfolio because it's diversified and it's diversification through industries and humans. And then it also obviously helps us learn and like gain exposure to so many different business models, industries, products, techniques that is effectively like an immense, you know, knowledge base that we've been able to get over these years. So you talked about, you know, you grew a lot as a person running Techstars. Do you remember like your first demo day and how did that, if you had to fast forward to your last demo day, what, what was the differences in terms of your ability of, or, or what were you proud of in terms of, you know, being able to guide those companies? Well, you know, my first program was a total mess. <laughs> I mean, like I barely survived. I think founders barely survived me because yeah. I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, I remember thinking when we finished our demo day, uh, the first one, I was thinking like, oh my God, we didn't screw anything up. That's insane. Because I was so scared <laughs> things are going to go wrong. And, you know, once you, you have to kind of go through this, running a Texas program is like a, unlike anything you can experience in life. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty unique experience. So, but once you sort of get the hang of it, you start understanding like what are the essentials and the essentials are helping founders grow their companies. And so one of the things I think became exceptional at is a playbook for growth and giving that playbook to different companies in different spaces, whether you're B2B or B2C or you're a marketplace, there are things, metrics, focus areas, KPIs, milestones that you need to be hitting and then how the specifics, techniques, optimization. So a lot of it is now on my blog, uh, but we've sort of built that playbook for growth. And then I think we became um, incredibly effective and efficient at matching companies to prospective investors because demo days are their okay vehicles for matching companies with investors, but people rarely write checks right then and there. So how do you build a system where you can actually for every company that's ready, find the right investors. And that's really hard. So we work to build that system, to build that uh, matching ability and obviously network and the trust of the community and the founders to be able to, to do that pretty efficiently. Now, to get into one of the premier accelerators like a Techstars, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs on how to stand out 
and actually get accepted to one of the programs? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I wrote a blog post about this. I don't know if it's actually on my front page or not, but I think, you know, just doing the application isn't enough. You need to stand out. And the simplest way you can stand out is understand who the managing director for the program is and get on their radar, get a warm introduction, get another founder, um, <clears throat> whether they went through the program or not, to introduce you. That is going to put you on their radar. And then start working with them early while you're in the application process. Start sending updates every week. Start showing the progress that you're making. Um, ask for help. Engage them, even though you're not, you know, working together as an investor in the company yet, but start engaging them. And then um, really network with alumni of that accelerator. Very few founders do that. And I think it's such a good way to sort of get on the radar network with alumni to A, understand what are you going to get actually out of this, but B, how can you maximize the time there? And like, how can you best position yourself to get in? That is awesome advice. Moving on to the next chapter. What you're up to uh, now is super exciting. And, and, you know, I was thinking about, you know, your professional history, starting companies, running tech stars, I think has uniquely set you up for what you're doing next. So what, what is that? Yeah. So after five incredible years, I left Techstars to launch earliest stage venture firm and we're called 2048 Ventures. And we just announced that we've closed our first Fund One, uh, which is a $27 million vehicle. And we are thrilled to be first check investor, focusing on companies differentiated through technology and specifically being geo-agnostic and specifically focusing on first-time founders and founders with a first-time founder mindset. Now, can you expand on that? So you said first-time founders and you know repeat founders with a first-time founder mindset. So what is your definition of a first-time founder mindset? First-time first founder mindset is somebody who still demonstrates a lot of hunger, a lot of grit, a lot of resilience. And it's somebody who hasn't had that massive exit, somebody who has tried to start a company or maybe started a consultancy or a nonprofit, but still needs help and needs access and wants sort of a lot of, a lot of what 2048 is about is democratizing access to these closed networks that, you know, we feel shouldn't be closed. And we feel like we can help a lot of founders get into, but it's really somebody who is hungry, who is coachable, who wants our help and who wants to get access. Now, do you actually have uh, any specific areas of technology that you, you are kind of honing in on? Is it, or is it just you know, broader? We are, um, I mean, we're always focused on founders first. That said, we do have themes that both Paul, my, my partner, Paul and I are excited about. So Paul is focused on uh, B2B enterprise, B2B SaaS, FinTech, healthcare, um, HR tech and logistics. And I am more focused on developer tools, cybersecurity, um, hardware, AI, machine learning, and genomics. Now, that said, if a company doesn't fall into the specific category, we still would take a look at it. If it's tech differentiated, um, we're excited to sort of we're we're excited to look across different spaces. So, a question that I don't think I've ever asked, but I've always been curious about, is raising a new fund. 
Um, so what, what is that process like? I mean, so there's LPs, like how do you discover, I don't know if you went, you know, pension funds or you know, high net worth individuals, but like, how do you go about raising a $27 million fund? I'll tell you, it's not easy. <laughs> That's what I imagine. That's why I- <laughs> you need to have a plan and you need to have a strategy and you need to be prepared. Um, in general, raising venture, uh, you know, is, is very, very difficult to raise these different funds. And so it, the strategy typically depends on the fund size. We are incredibly lucky to have the absolutely best top uh, founders who are, you know, like, we're lucky to have like the absolute best LPs, the founders of iconic tech companies and venture firms um, on board. And so we specifically wanted to have this group um, behind us because A, we felt like we can learn a ton from them. But more importantly, when we unveil our LPs, you know, it's a signal that we're building a fund that's focused on tech. And we wanted previous generation of successful tech founders and tech investors to effectively invest through us in the next generation. And so we feel like this is very meaningful. And, you know, it's taken us basically three and a half months to pull together the capital. And, you know, like I said, we've been super lucky uh, to get um, really high caliber LPs on board. Um, But, you know, we don't take it for granted. In general, we don't take anything for granted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I imagine it must be really, really challenging to build, especially as a new firm, uh, firms that maybe have a history of generating returns and they're raising their third, fourth, fifth, or whatever fund. It's, um, I'm sure it's not easy, but obviously you have some credibility to, uh, to stand off of. One of the other things that I thought was interesting about, um, you know, just kind of the, the stance you were making was like a keeping companies local. So you're, you're location agnostic. And, um, you know, I've seen other firms in the past, you know, kind of have this mandate of, well, if we're going to invest in your company, then you got to move to the Valley or whatever, wherever the case may be. So it seems like you were almost uh, taking a, a different approach of, you know, keeping that company local and focused on growing it within their own city or region. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the inspirations behind 2048 is we want to power the next generation of technology companies. And we have a firm belief that they're going to come from everywhere. And, effectively talent ideas it's been geographically dispersed for years now and there's just so many wonderful founders who are working um you know around you know different cities not just you know obviously silicon valley but um you know in new york in boston in atlanta in waterloo in austin in nashville many many different cities and so for us it's just recognizing that the world has gone global the company are going to be built in a distributed way. They're going to come out of everywhere and that the venture itself is going to become decentralized. And so that's why we're really inspired uh, with this idea to build a geographically agnostic venture firm from the bottom up so that we don't have to rewire ourselves as we grow, but instead, literally day one, we're thinking about what that means, what infrastructure we need to put in place, how do we source, how do we engage these companies remotely, um, building all of these playbooks, we're we're super fired up about this because this is a brand new problem. I don't think a lot of people have solved it, and so we're just excited to roll up our sleeves. Now, to dig again into the great uh, you know website you have with all these great pieces of information, I'm going to kind of drill down a little bit on on some of the topics that you do cover in detail. But um, so, w- what are the key questions that entrepreneurs 
need to ask investors. So I think this is a different slant. Usually it's like, okay, as an entrepreneur, I got to be prepared for what the VC is going to ask me. But I, I love how you turn the table there. Like, what are the things that entrepreneurs should be asking investors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really great question. And I believe strongly that every interview is a two-way street. So as investors are asking founders questions, founders should absolutely ask investors questions as well. And the biggest question is, can this investor invest in me? And so the first thing that they should figure out is like, is the check size correct? If we're raising pre-seed or seed, you know, we're talking to Series A firm, they're most likely not going to invest because there's mismatch in the check size. Um, similarly, they should think about like, hey, how many investments does this firm make a year? Uh, do they still have capital to invest? Um, depending on where they are in their cycle, the answer may be maybe no, and they should they should figure this out. And then probably the hardest thing to figure out when you're talking to an institutional firm is the dynamic within the firm. Um, is this person does this person have an ability to make an investment? What is the dynamic? How the decisions are being made? But really important thing is to actually ask these questions and not be shy because if you don't ask them, people may not volunteer this information. But if you do ask, I don't think people would, uh, you know, would lie. They would, they would tell you the truth. Uh, so you talk about um, a company's magic moment. Um, so so what, how do you define that? Like, what is that as far as, you know, part of building a company, the magic moment? So in a way, I'm trying to teach founders about building a viable business. So when you think about magic moment, magic moment is some set of actions that customer has taken to get into the state such that in the future, they're not going to churn. So when you think about magic moment, if you take a thousand customers, if they reached magic moment, that means they can't live without the product. And so because it becomes sticky, they won't churn in the future. So what I teach founders is that sale isn't really the final thing. The final thing is retention and customer success and sort of understanding the magic moment of usage. So really focusing on that super early on is the essential ingredient of building a stable business. Because if you sell stuff that people don't use, you ultimately don't have a company. If you sell stuff that most customers churn, you don't have a company. So how do you make sure that you have a sticky product, sticky business? That's what Magic Moment is all about. Got it. Okay. How often should entrepreneurs be uh, providing updates to their, um, you know, their, their mentors and investors? And what, and what should they include as part of that update? So, uh, you know, I think the right cadence when you're in the program like Techstars or another accelerator, it's weekly because the program's pacing is weekly. When you are, uh, you know, in the wild, in the real world, I would say every four to six uh, weeks, if you are, um, if you are seed stage company, once you get to the later stage, like series A, series B, I think quarterly is more appropriate. The point of these updates is to establish cadence and really help the founders get to the milestones they need to get to. And so the important things that you want to share with your investors is how are things going? Like, you know, whether it's good or bad, you know, if you're growing, share the growth. If you're struggling, share the struggles. The idea is you want to eliminate situations where people haven't heard from you from nine to 12 months. And then you come back and you're like, hey, I'm out of money. 
that's not, you know, like those situations become really difficult. Um, and especially if you haven't communicated, people won't be inclined to re-up and back you again. But if you have been, you know, everybody gets that these processes, startups are never smooth, right? So people understand that you're struggling. But if you're transparent with your struggles, with your investors, I think you you get much better outcomes. And, and people can genuinely help. So you should include asks, you should include thank yous, and then you should include like state of the business. Yeah. And then like, you know, things like hiring, Hey, I'm looking for these key hires and you've got, you know, that network effect of hopefully uh, referrals happening. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, the thing that I always tell founders is, you know, I can't guarantee that I'm going to help you make the hire, but if you let me know who you're hiring, I may just bump into the right person. So to your point, it's all about leveraging your network. Now you've been part of the New York tech scene for many years now. Um, where do you think it is right now? Like, what's the current state of the New York tech scene? I mean, I think New York tech is incredibly strong. It's continuing to grow. We've now had um, very significant, you know, uh, very significant billion dollar exits to sort of put that to rest. Not that, in my opinion, like that was never sort of the measuring stick. New York is incredibly strong and diverse. We continue to thrive when it comes to historically, you know, finance, but also like real estate, but we're also building, rapidly building muscle in AI, um, you know, data science, analytics, uh, virtual reality. Um, the tech scene is incredibly diverse. There is a lot more angel investors now, and that is an essential ingredient to fuel more startups. And there is now more startup founders. We also have figured out, you know, Engineering supply people are coming from West Coast, but also Cornell Tech is really strong, NYU, uh, NYU Poly, so Hope Columbia, obviously. So I think that New York is just going to continue on this trajectory of generating more and more innovation, more and more great technology companies. Yeah, no, there's so much going on. And it just seems to be such an influx of capital that's accessible to startup founders in New York now. I mean, we're seeing increasing returns, right? Because if you read Brad Feld's book on how do you build um, entrepreneurial ecosystems, there's effectively three essential ingredients, which is founders, engineering talent, and capital. And it's a virtuous cycle in a way. It's a network effect when you get more of one and another, and then things start to work. And now then you're seeing um, companies exit at very high valuations that generates a lot of angel investors that in turn attract startups. And with an engineering pool being here, it just creates this sort of like snowball effect. And I think my forecast for New York is very bright. I think we're going to see incredible amount of innovation in coming years. And I think we're also going to diversify more into life sciences, quantum computing. We're going to continue to build like deep tech muscle in this town. You're really busy right now building a new firm, 2048, which I heard you haven't disclosed the meaning behind that name yet. There's a, you're actually soliciting people to throw in what, what they think the meaning is right now, right? Yeah, we, you know, obviously we, we're inspired by the future. And, but we, um, when we were recruiting a hiring for associate role, we actually put out like two nerdy questions. One was, why is pi an infinite number? And the second question was, why we called 2048 and we got just such a wonderful 
array of answers and like we haven't thought about like half of them i mean obviously there's multiple meanings to to the name mm-hmm. and we just figured that it's amazing it's like a good piece of art right like when you look at it you see your thing and when i look at it i see something else and we just figured hey let's let's just keep it that way let's let people interpret 2048 the way they want to interpret it that's very cool well you're busy building 2048 but time outside of work what do you like to do I mean, I am literally incredibly busy person, but I'm also incredibly disciplined. And so I focus a lot on self-care, which is part of my work, meaning um, I exercise regularly. Um, I'm a vegan. You know, I try to basically make sure that I can do the job. And then I I spend a lot of time with my kids and my family and we're avid travelers and we're big nerds. So we effectively, if we're at home, we're just nerding out on something. And if we're traveling, I like to, you know, go around the US and around the world. And really, there's not much time for anything else. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your background and all the great things you've done as an entrepreneur. And obviously, uh, as managing director of Techstars, and I'm excited to see what comes next with 2048. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.